0: Well, good morning, and welcome to this worship service this morning. It's so good to have you here, and I trust that you had a wonderful Christmas celebration together with your family and with friends. And I know that we have some visitors uh, that have been here part of uh, uh, Christmas celebrations with family. It's also good to see the Allards back here. Haven't seen you for quite a while. It's always nice to see uh, former friends who come back and every once in a while check, check in with us. Uh, it's my privilege. I'm Pastor Sieg, the interim pastor. It's my privilege to share the word with you this morning. And uh, I thought the appropriate word this morning would be from 1 John chapter 2 and uh, chapter 3, in which uh, he talks about, uh, dear children, this is the last hour. Well, this is our last worship service of the year. And it's a time to reflect back and to recognize where are we at. And it's also a time to hopefully anticipate what God will do in the future. Uh, Just this uh, past week, uh, I had come across uh, uh, some statistics that indicated that in 2017, that's a couple of years ago now, uh, almost, uh, even though uh, we have some economic challenges in Calgary, our city was once again uh, opted or voted to be the fifth most desirable city in the world to live in. Now, I'm not sure what all goes into that, but uh, if you look at that chart behind me, you will see that uh, it begins with uh, Melbourne, Australia, with Vienna, Austria, with Vancouver, Canada, and then there's Toronto, number four. Uh, I think that could be debatable. Uh, LAUGHTER uh, and then Calgary number five, sharing that spot with Adelaide in Australia. Recognizing that there are a number of factors that they count in, it's, it's what's available, it's, it's the amenities in the city, it's the kind of uh, uh, economic flow and so on. And to me it was surprising, because our economic woes did not just happen in 2018, they've been going on for some time, they're getting worse as we move forward. Uh, unless something drastic will happen, but it's still uh, challenging to understand that by God's grace, uh, we are living in a very desirable part of the world. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that every morning. When I stand in, in my kitchen and have my first cup of coffee, I, I have a habit of looking out the window over our balcony, out to the ski hill across the the, the, the valley and downtown and all the way out to the mountains if you can actually see the mountains when it's clear enough. And I just stand there and I just praise God for his goodness and for his wonderful grace that we are allowed to live in such a beautiful place. But at the same time, we, we recognize that our present reality in our beloved Canada is not all that we would desire it to be. In fact, there's, there's three th- factors that enter into this. Uh, the first one is, the prevailing doctrine or the prevailing philosophy in, in Canada seems to be extreme tolerance. Now, tolerance in itself is good. Being able to put up with somebody else's uh, uh, behavior or, or attitudes and, and, and being able to negotiate life, uh, even though there are so many differences of opinions and what have you. But anytime you have it in an extreme form, that means extreme tolerance, anything goes, and uh, you have no right to ever critique or criticize or draw attention to where the end result of that situation would go, that's not a good thing. Uh, Yet that is where we find ourselves in Canada politically, uh, socioeconomically, uh, and the general response on the part of the population tends to be extreme apathy. Rather than addressing the issues, it seems like we're just coasting along and allowing it to happen, and uh, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more. And the underlying reason to all of that seems to be that there's also extreme confusion. People no longer know what is up or down, what is right or wrong, especially when it comes to moral issues, when it comes to uh, things that would concern God in our lives, because he created us for a purpose, a, a purpose that involves Him, uh, a purpose to glorify Him with the life we live, with the attitudes we uh, display, with, the, with the, the things we say and do. And uh, let's unpack this just a little bit because uh, what we are living under is what has been termed the New World Order. And uh, the New World Order has turned everything, it seems, upside down from what norms were in the past, and whatever was considered to be good is now bad, and whatever was considered to be morally wrong is now considered to be wonderful if we can do it and not hurt anybody else in the process. So let's talk about a little bit, before we get into the word here, about that extreme tolerance issue in Canadian society, because it seems that our elected officials for the most part, and also the courts who are appointed to uh, make sure that justice prevails in our land. But they seem to consider themselves noble when they sacrifice their own moral convictions on on the shrine, on the altar of extreme tolerance. And uh, as if it were possible to be able to separate who you are from what it is you do. We know that uh, uh, a good person does not murder. A good person does not embezzle money that does not belong to him. A good person does not inflict harm on others in whatever context that may be, nor would he aid and abed those who perpetrate such crimes. Jesus himself taught his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7, every good tree bears good fruit, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. What he's saying is when you're looking around at fellow human beings around you, how they act, how they think, how they express themselves, what they do with their lives, how they use their funds, how they live their lives, gives you a clue as to whether they are a good tree or a bad tree. Because there's consistency in the fact that, that a bad tree cannot produce good fruit and vice versa. Now, we're living in a day and age in which our politicians to a large degree, and please understand, I know a number of politicians who are wonderful Christians. Uh, Most of them seem to be right now in the opposition party. But uh, these are people who love the Lord and who want to live their lives as a good tree, producing good fruit. But they find themselves in, in constraints, even if they belong to the ruling party, and there are some who do. But they have been coerced into putting their own conscience on hold, their own moral sense on hold, and our prime minister uh, is actually guilty uh, in coercing party members to vote against their own conscience on moral issues. That's not a secret. It's been in the press. It's been known all along. And we have that at the federal as well as at the provincial level. And so we have reason to be concerned. Because if that continues, obviously God cannot be pleased with our country. The idea of being a people of uh, extreme apathy probably is fueled by the fact that we, we do not have an easy way of being able to express how we feel and what it is we believe without being made the laughing stock of the world. In fact, ordinary Christians, ordinary Canadian believers, uh, no longer can uh, express themselves uh, in terms of their rights and their freedoms and exercise their faith uh, because uh, rules are being imposed upon even the church and especially on schools that have any kind of a faith. Uh, Content and, and, and focus uh, that that would put them out of business if they persist in exercising their faith as they believe God leads them in a way, what has happened is like the proverbial frog in the kettle we 've become so used to uh, the dishonesty the the, the, the the manipulation of what's going on both in society politically as well as in the press in many cases, that that we've become so accustomed to it, we we don't know how to respond. Canadians are way too nice to ever stand up and protest against things. Uh, Lately, we've had some of those, and here in Calgary, they've been very peaceful, and I'm glad for that. I don't want to see bloodshed. I don't want to see cars turned over and put on fire. I don't want to see riots in the street. But the reality is, that somehow the message doesn't get to the people who need to hear. Either they ignore it, or they simply have spin doctors who say, well, that's because of that, and that's because of that, and and so they're no longer listening to what people's hearts and minds are saying to them. And we often hear this common accepted truism uh, that it doesn't make a difference what you believe as long as you're sincere. But we need to examine that and ask the question, is that really so? A couple of scenarios here. Uh, A nurse in the hospital dispenses medicine to a patient that she really believes is the right medicine for that condition. And the patient becomes violently ill and almost dies. Why? Because even though the nurse was very sincere in administering the medication, it was the wrong medication. Or another scenario that you've seen on, on television, on the news. Uh, happened uh, not so long ago in the States. Father wakes up in the middle of the night and hears, hears some noise in the house. So he gets his bon- gun and he wants to confront what he thinks is an intruder, a a, a break-in, and he shoots the person only to discover it was his daughter who woke up and needed to have a glass of water, and so she was moving around the house. He was perfectly sincere in wanting to defend his family, but he was sincerely wrong, and instead of protecting, he killed a member of his family. Now, obviously, it takes more than sincerity to make something true, and faith in a lie will always result in serious consequences. That's why my message this morning is about uh, uh, the last hour, truth or consequences. That used to be a game show many, many years ago. Most of you probably don't even remember that, but uh, the idea is that there are some consequences to what we believe and how we act and what we do. Most of us have no problem having tolerance towards people who have a different point of view. As long as we can sit down and discuss it uh, one-on-one, intelligently, and look at all the implications one way or the other, and hopefully we we can gain mutual understanding about the situation rather than simply writing each other off and not having anything to do with each other. And and I find that uh, if we... Uh, allow the word of God to enter that conversation, it really gets us on the right track to find out what God thinks about these situations. But in today's Canada, it seems that the worst offense is to upset people by telling the absolute truth of the gospel. Uh, We've had a number of people now who've been arrested. We've had people who have fallen into disrepute simply because they preached from the pulpit Uh, something that was perfectly true and the word of God substantiates it and they did not necessarily say in in a hateful or spiteful way just out of concern to let people know you cannot just think anything or do anything and expect to please God by doing so. Jesus made it very clear that there is only one way to the Father. There is only one way to God. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, absolutely no one comes to the Father except through me. That sounds very narrow, but it's the truth, and we need to embrace that, and we need to teach that, and we need to continue to articulate that all around us because uh, as noble as the, the notion of tolerance may be, truth is that Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, pantheism, or any of the other isms cannot possibly all be right. There's only one truth. And Jesus said that truth is personified by him. That's what we celebrated at Christmas. There's lots of people who celebrate Christmas, have no clue why we celebrate. It's all about gifts, it's all about parties, it's all about tinsel and lights and what have you. And those are nice. I like, I have lights. I have a creche in front of my house. I have, I have decorations, but that's not what I'm celebrating. I'm celebrating the fact that the truth of God has dawned upon the world by God's initiative. That's the whole idea. And it seems that when we turn to the word of God, it, it wasn't a whole lot different in John's day because during the first century after Christ, many false teachers questioned and disputed the claims, the validity of the claims of Christ. Uh, This is why the Apostle Paul, uh, John wrote his epistles to correct the error and to fortify the faith of, of his fellow believers who were being confused by those voices of people who seemed to claim to be teaching the word of God, but they had a different spin to it. Some of these people were called the Gnostics, they had been influenced and impacted in their mind by Greek philosophy. So they tried to somehow fit the Christian doctrine and truth into Greek thinking. And the mind is everything. Uh, you know, knowledge is everything. And, and, and they, they actually falsified the gospel with their own ideas, and then there were those who were of, of a Hebrew background who tried to somehow weave back into the New Testament setting all of the Hebrew traditions. And, and you need to fulfill this. You need to have uh, you know all the Old Testament uh, things in place. Otherwise, you cannot be a true Christian. And that's, this was confusing to these people. So here's John the Elder. And I, I, I look to him as... As, as being kind of the one who was closest to the heart of Jesus. We know that uh, at the time of uh, uh, the Lord's Supper, when Jesus instituted uh, this perpetual meal of memorial, uh, it was John who leaned against the breast of Jesus. He was always close to him. And the others would feed him questions and would say, ask him this, ask him this, what does he say about that? And so John is the one who has a love for the church at large for his fellow believers. He uses endearing kind of language uh, because he's John the Elder, he calls everybody else children. Well, you know, when I go to the doctor now, the doctor is younger than my son. Uh, it takes a little bit of uh, faith to actually follow his advice. What does he know? You know, <laughs> But he is a professional, and I love him for that, and I'm glad for that. And and so John does not uh, denigrate these people. He's simply writing from a loving, caring, fatherly, grandfatherly kind of perspective. Dear children, he says in verse 19, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming... So they had heard about the Antichrist. They knew that there was going to be some changes that will be happening. Even now, many Antichrists have come. You see, people who are into end-time philosophy, uh, usually when they think of the last hour, they're thinking, well, we're so close. Jesus is going to come any time today. In fact, I've had people say to me, what's the point of going out evangelizing? Because, uh, you know, There isn't isn't time for those people to repent. Jesus will come soon. Well, that's not quite what the the word teaches us. The end time, the last hour, isn't just the last Sunday of the year. It wasn't just the time in which John lived. It began when Jesus ascended back into heaven with the promise that he would come back again in power and great glory and establish his kingdom here on earth. And ever since then, we've been counting the last hour. It's been many hours. It's been many years. It's been a couple of thousand years. We don't know when he comes, but we do know for sure that Jesus will return. And when that comes, it is forever too late to make a decision to follow him. The opportunity is now. And so he says, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. Why? Because these false teachers are are trying to lead you astray and pull you away from Christ. They went out from us. And the us here is not just they left the church, the true believing church. It actually implies that they, they were from among us like the apostles are, like the people who teach the truth. But these false teachers, these antichrists, uh, they are gone because they never really fully belong to us. They've always had their own ideas. Uh, for they had, if they had belonged to us, they would, n- would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now that's hard to believe because some of those people maybe were friends of the people he's writing to. I remember when when I first became a believer back in 1954, our congregation in Winnipeg went through a terrible experience of having a universalist group, a cell that developed within the church. And uh, I was a brand new believer and I had somebody come to me and they they were respected people in the church and they said, Siegfried, how are you doing? with the Lord. You should come on Thursday evening. My aunt teaches the Bible the way it ought to be taught. I was a new believer, but there's a red light went on in my mind. And the red light said, are you saying that our pastor doesn't teach the word the way it should be taught? And so I said, thanks, but no thanks. Well, within just a year later, It came to a showdown in the congregation and 70 people left the church because they were exposed as teaching heresy. They believed that in the end, everyone will be reconciled with God, even the devil himself. In fact, this aunt, this lady, used to boast and said, I look forward to the day when I will walk arm in arm, the streets of glory with the devil. And I had a strong sense that she may be walking arm in arm with the devil, but it won't be the streets of glory. That's not what the Bible teaches. We need to understand truth from error, and he is trying to correct that. So who is the Antichrist? It's not just one person personified here. It it is the whole system of false teaching people who are not just anti-Christ in the sense of opposition. That's one, word, one meaning of the, of the word anti or anti. The other one is substitute for. So someone who is offering you a better gospel, someone who is guaranteeing you, if you believe this and if you sent me $500, God will bless you and you will be prosperous in 2019. That's not what the Bible teaches. Prosperity in the eyes of God has nothing to do with monetary values. It has everything to do with the value of your soul for which God gave the highest gift he could ever have given his dear son who was sinless, who went to the cross in order to take away your sin and mine. That's where salvation, that's where the value God places is. And so rather than focusing on a specific person and trying to figure it out, because I remember when I was a relatively new Christian, I heard all kinds of uh, uh, prophetic sermons, uh, and you know, Mussolini uh, was considered to be the Antichrist. Kissinger was considered to be the Antichrist. There were lots of people that over the years in my life, have been identified and they've come and gone and they did not turn out to be the Antichrist. No, he's saying many of them are here and they come in all kinds of forms and presentations and we need to understand that. So he's, he's saying to them, uh, you know, think of someone who's trying to teach you something from the Word that is not really true to the Word. And so the question comes up, what is truth? How do we know what is the truth? I do not write to you, he says, because you do not know the truth. That's in contrast to the Gnostics who were saying, you don't know anything. You need to understand it in this system. Here's the way we have to configure it so you know. And so he said, no, it's not that you don't know the truth. You already know the truth because you became believers. You gave your heart and life to Jesus. You are believers and you have assurance of salvation. He says, I didn't write you because you didn't know, but... But because you do know uh, the truth and know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. If it is the truth they teach, then it should square with the rest of Scripture. Who is a liar, he says? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. You see, there were those who were saying Jesus was a wonderful teacher, but he's not the Savior, he's not the Messiah. There's no such thing as a Messiah. That's just a figment of the imagination. That's wishful thinking. And and John is saying, no. You know the truth. And anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ is a liar. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son because Jesus did not act on his own. Throughout his earthly ministry, he kept saying, I'm only saying what the Father has given me. I'm only telling you what my Father has said to me. And so he was the emissary. He was the one who was teaching us uh, all truth that squared with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Because the moment you become a believer, God Father, God Son, God Holy Spirit all take up residence in your life. And you either... Accept Jesus and all that he taught, or none of it applies. You can't just pick and choose what you want to believe about the Bible. I've had some people who say, yeah, you know, Peter was a kind of a simple preacher, and so I I accept what Peter has to say. But I don't like so much what Paul says, because he was way too uh, theological. Well, it is true, he was a well-trained theologian, but it's not... Peter or Paul, it's not Cephas, it's, it's not what uh, Paul writes to the first Corinthians, as some of you say, I follow so-and-so, I follow so-and-so, are you not still carnal if you hitch your wagon to a person rather than to Jesus, rather than to, to the truth of God's word, and so we need to accept all that he has because he is either the son of God or he's an imposter and cannot be trusted at all. So you have to make up your mind. Why is John writing these things at this point? It's in order for them to be reinforced in their faith. He says, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will remain in the Son and in the Father. Pastor Grant said earlier that if you don't have a Bible, we'll gladly provide you one because reading the Word of God is the most important thing that you can do in order to gain a better understanding and if you say, I don't know how to read it, I don't know, I can't understand the words in it, well, here's, here, here's what you do. Take the Word of God, start with a simple passage in the Gospels, Gospel of Mark is the shortest Gospel, and, and before you open the book, say, dear Heavenly Father, I, I, don't, I don't quite understand all that's written here please open my mind, open my eyes, open, open my understanding to your truth so that when I read it, it will spring from the page into my heart so that I understand and I can embrace it with all my heart. That's the way to read the Bible. Not saying I'm going to read it for what, it's, what, what is wrong with it or to prove or disprove something. You need to read it with faith with a desire to know God better. And so he's saying, uh, this is what he promised us, eternal life. And if you have the son, you have the life, he says in the, the chapter later. But he says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. So get back to the word, read what it says, believe what it says, apply what it says, live it out, and you will discover in a powerful way, that God will show you his light along the way. And he says we don't have to do it in our own strength because he says, but, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. Does that mean they can now be arrogant because nobody can teach me anything? No. Who is teaching them? The anointing. Who is the anointing? The Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus, before he left, he said to his disciples, I'm going to go away, but when I go away, I will send you another comforter, the Paracletus, the Holy Spirit. He will teach you all truth. That's why you need to ask him to teach you all truth as you read the word of God. So it's not just your idea and what you read in between the lines, but what it actually says in the word. You have that anointing, he says, and his anointing teaches you all about things as that anointing is real and not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And the repetition of the words uh, anointing and remaining have to do with the fact that he wants to impress upon him. That's the only way he will ever fully understand. Along with that, he offers them strong encouragement. In the next couple of verses, he says, And now, dear dear children, uh, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. It requires some effort on our part. Now, Not that we have to hang on for dear life because otherwise we'll be saved and lost again and saved and lost again. No, that's not the idea. The idea is that we're in his hands, but we need to consciously choose to be in his hands. It's a cooperation between the divine and the human element. Uh, It is a relationship, and a relationship has to go both ways, you know, it doesn't matter how much you love your spouse if your spouse doesn't love you. You don't have much of a relationship. It doesn't matter how much you love your child, but if your your child hates you, that kind of interferes with any kind of positive relationship. It, it's a mutual agreement between the two parties here, and the benefit is in continuing Christ. Is that we will be confident and unashamed at the time. Uh, of his glorious return. And so he says the test of that relationship, if you know that he is righteous, you also know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Because none of us are good in ourselves, only as the Holy Spirit enables us to do the right, to make the right response to God's desire in our lives. Can we actually live that kind of life? And so again, we're back to the notion that that somehow as a person does, so is he. And uh, the actions often speak louder than the words and much clearer than the words. And then finally, he reminds him of the privileged, privileged position that we have as believers. Our true identity as children of God rests in this. How great is the love of the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. I like that word lavished because what he says is God went over the top far more than we deserve. He has lavished on us the privilege of being called his children. And then he says, and that is what we are, and there's an exclamation point behind that to help them understand, don't you ever forget you're a child of God purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. And the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The world at large has rejected God, has rejected ultimate truth, has rejected absolute truth, has has come up with their own idea as to how this world ever exists and began because they want anything but God. That's really what it boils down to. That's the new world order. And if it's anything but God, then we can fix it. We're so smart. We can fix it. And we can do it By raising carbon tax, by doing this, by doing that, by doing that, how that actually affects what is happening in the climate is anybody's guess, even the people who prescribe the the remedy because they're they're just blowing in the wind. They have no idea what they're talking about. Here is God's truth, and you and I as believers need to rest in him. He goes on, he says, that's not the whole story. There's a future glory for us awaiting. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, most of us have some people that we admire, and people that we would like to be like, and uh, if we can come closer to who they are, who that ideal is, that that you know, kind of boosts our uh, self-esteem, our sense of uh, who we are, and especially if if that is someone that's your father, a model in your life, someone who was your disciple, the person who, who first led you to Christ, uh, and to become like that person is, is great. But greater still is to become like Jesus. Christ-likeness is what he's talking about. And uh, uh, we... We learned last week that there's, there's no hope for us in the, in the world today apart from the hope that is provided in Christ and for the fact that he loved us enough to give himself for us. He concludes this whole thought here, that uh, if anyone uh, has this hope in him, he purifies himself just as he is pure. And what he means by that is in the so what ending of a message, He is saying that clearly the inerrant word of God gives us a choice. We can embrace God's truth and inherit eternal life, or we can follow Satan's lie as the rest of the world does. We may be more popular in the world that way, but there are eternal consequences. God did not create us to be robots. He did not create us to simply have to respond whichever way he wishes, without our involvement. Uh, If he would have done that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve would have never sinned. But that would also not be true worship because Jesus clearly stated that God is a spirit, and he desires those who worship him to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so a free will response To the grace of God is what he's looking for. He has graciously given us that opportunity. He has not just programmed us that way. Well, very quickly, three questions. Number one, do you share that hope for the future? And if so, does that affect you in the way that you desire to purify yourself, to become more holy, to become more like Jesus in your life? Do you have a growing relationship with Jesus? And again, it's a two-way street. Relationship always desires, requires two people on either end. And if not, what needs to change in your life? What would have to be different from now on for you to have that relationship with Jesus? We're praying, church. And as we have indicated a number of times, as we close our service, we invite anyone who struggles with these issues to come forward, to be seated at the front. We'll gladly come and pray with you, guide you, and and, and encourage you along the way and pray with you into a right relationship of peace with God. Do that while we sing our closing song, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and uh, to at this point lead us again in the final song. And while, while we sing, you may take a seat in the front. Somebody else will come and join you.